0: No talk, ya barmy prats. It's your old daft lad, dodgy and minted as ever, the British robo deep state, back to bugger all and clap your trap. So shut your gobs and listen up to the latest goings on in all my devious schemes. You may remember, my dim witted knobs. The last time we spoke I had sent platinum rap a lil pump to South America, in order to win over hearts and minds with soft power, good looks, catchy beats, and that raucous playful lyricism. Gucci gang, indeed. Well, I'm very unshuffed to report that the plonking nutter has really made a pig's ear of the project. You see, the plastered chav has joined the militant coca farmers union in El Alto, and he stopped responding to our emails months ago. He's invested all the black op poppy cash we sent him off with into Ethereum, and rumor has it he won't shut up about something he calls, meme audio NFTs. The last message we received from him said simply, my beloved do cocaine. Thus, we're no closer now to seizing the Bolivian lithium deposits that dear leader Elon, my dad owned a diamond mine in apartheid South Africa, Musk, needs to fuel his climate crisis cash grab and last gasp of late stage capitalism, known cutely and cleverly as the Green New Deal, with the green referring to grotesque profits set to be gobbled up by the Davos crowd. Bunch of weirdos dancing around an owl, but they own 90% of the world's wealth, so, do you know. Anyway, here's a real new deal for your portly wankers. Asteroid mining. That is correct, you poffed bitches. If the Bolivians won't fork over their rechargeable rock juice, we'll simply go to space for it. Private interplanetary prospecting spacecraft is nothing for a high class toff like myself. And in fact I've always wanted to project my metadata slurping streams out into the universe like a giant encrypted digital phallus. And so, ya cheeky muppets, off I go, into the cold vacuum of space, to find an asteroid to mine. In the meantime, do look after my beloved Liverpool FC. Let Prince Andrew know, the funny money slush fund is safe in the Grand Cayman. And now, you grimy tossers, let a robotic deep state get trolled on his asteroidal mining craft in peace. Sod off, you shook skins.
1: Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics the podcast dedicated to the elevation of the human spirit and to resisting the status quo. Take yourself back to 65 million years ago, about 200,000 years after a massive asteroid collided with Earth and drove the dinosaurs to extinction. I, however, survived. And I am a small, very small actually, weighing less than half a pound, nocturnal rat-like shrew creature that dines on insects. And it was me, the proto-placental mammal, that gave rise to the entire galaxy of mammals we know today everything from guinea pigs to blue whales to human beings so if you like your iphone and your kink dungeons and your football team and your party drugs you can thank me the tiny insectivorous shrew rat thingy that gave rise to the human species and gave rise to naked mole rats and to jaguars mole rats jaguars and bonobos oh my And among other things, the little shrew-like creature also gave rise to myself, your loyal host, Conan Tanner. What's up everybody, what's good? Thank you so much for tuning in, for jumping in, for integrating me into your day. I appreciate you, I appreciate all my listeners. Thank you so much as we work together to elevate the human spirit. Very happy to be here with you guys. It is, uh, summer is subsiding here in South Phoenix, it's still fucking hot as hell, but I can turn my front AC off now to record segments, and my my brains don't start melting out of my ears, and uh, you know, it's already halfway through September, I'm coming at you from a beautiful sunny Saturday, and I am very happy to be here with you guys. I hope y'all are doing well, I send lots of love and good vibes wherever you may be, across the rabbit holes of space and time. So for today's show, we're going to be discussing a topic that I've been wanting to tackle for a long time. It's something that I've been personally uh, passionate about ever since I, I learned about this gentleman. His name is Leonard Peltier. So Leonard Peltier is an American Indian activist. He was a member of the American Indian Movement, and he is a political prisoner. He is the longest he, he is the longest incarcerated political prisoner in the United States. He's been in jail now for 47 years. He is 77 years old. He's been transferred to all these different facilities. He's currently at a supermax penitentiary in Florida. And his health is failing. I mean, he's an old man now. He's 77 years old. He's also innocent. He is a political prisoner. So I wanted to do... I wanted to feature him, I wanted to get his story out there and get the facts out for people so they can realize that, you know, we do have political prisoners in this country and uh, Leonard Peltier is one of them. I won't get too much into the whole story because obviously I'm going to be covering that later on in the episode. but. All Leonard Peltier did was try to defend his people and his family and his tribe. That's all he did. And he was called to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in 1975 to protect against what was referred to as the reign of terror. There was an FBI-led reign of terror where they were, it was like what we do in Syria and like what we do in, in, you know, in El Salvador in the 80s. The U.S. was sponsoring death squads that were working with the corrupt, um, kind of like paramilitary wing of the corrupt tribal leadership to immiserate and repress the people because the American Indian Movement was becoming a threat to the establishment. And so Leonard Peltier was a leader, he was a sort of spiritual leader for the American Indian Movement and he was called to help protect Pine Ridge Reservation and that's why he was there on June 26, 1975 when there was a shootout that resulted in the death of two FBI agents. And that is what was pinned on Leonard Peltier, completely falsely. Peltier was there protecting the family against the reign of terror, but he did not shoot the FBI agents. So he's an innocent man and he's an old man and his health is failing. And we have to get him out of prison. The last time there was really a chance, people thought there was a chance. Well, he was told under Bill Clinton that he would be uh, pardoned. And then as part of the Monica Lewinsky deal, they specifically said that Clinton could not pardon Leonard Peltier because the FBI has like a specific beef with Leonard Peltier because they were embarrassed by the whole incident on Pine Ridge Reservation in 1975. And they have made it like they're like obsessed with they they didn't know who killed the guys. They had to pin it on someone. And so Leonard Peltier kind of became the guy that took all of their anger and hate, and there's even quotes about it, how like, they, there were two other men indicted in the murder, and they were acquitted, and then there was a statement from the prosecutor saying, we, we don't even want to worry about the other two guys, we want the full weight of the US prosecutorial machine to be uh, leveled at Leonard Peltier. So. The they specifically included in the Monica Lewinsky deal that Clinton could not. Sorry, I just like bashed my computer by accident. <laughs> that Clinton could not pardon Peltier, and then, you know, there was a, wh- a huge movement in um, 2017 uh, that Barack Obama would pardon Leonard Peltier, but of course, Barack fucking Obama didn't do it. And so now, you know, after in 2024, whether it, if Biden survives or whether it's Kamala, there's going to be a whole other movement to but at this point, it's like, fucking hey, dude, just let him out. I mean, he's almost 80, and his health is failing. And uh, I think I'm repeating myself now, so I'm going to stop ranting and yammering. But that's what today's uh, topic is going to be. You're still going to have the zany audio tidbits. As always, we have a WVMP segment I'm excited to share with you guys. But your well-seasoned veggies this week is going to be the story of American Indian activist and political prisoner, Leonard Peltier. I also want to make a quick note that I've heard his name pronounced several different ways. I don't know what's the correct way. I've heard it pronounced Peltier, Peltier, and Peltier. So I, I find myself kind of like jumping around different pronunciations, but doing my best here. So as always, y'all, I can really use your support to help keep the BMP on the air and to increase our audience and to grow our tribe of Philosopher Barbarians. So if you have not done so already, please rate, review, and subscribe. I really need reviews on Apple Podcasts, so please leave that five star, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're an Android person, you can do that on CastBox. Um, Spreading the word and telling a friend about the BMP is immeasurably valuable. And uh, I can really use a little bit of financial support as well. So if you enjoy what I'm doing here on the BMP, all I'm asking for is just $1 a month. Just $1 a month. And you can sign up at patreon.com slash noetics. And I would be eternally grateful to you. And you receive a Dream Interpretation coupon and an original haiku. So with all that said, I we'll let's get into this episode i send you lots of love and good vibes y'all and uh, i'll talk to you at the end all right much love peace
2: And when he sleeps
1: myths across the valley tell of old cousins being massacred by giant clawed beasts, angular metallic spleens, hydraulic nerves, harshly painted skin. Mostly, though, mesquite trees sit like thorny Buddhas, distributed across the shrubland, undisturbed, and so dry that when it rains, the moisture must be scooped and held for months, treasured and kept like baby photos or secrets. I've heard stories of certain cousins that sit, stoic, in loud parking lots, surrounded by loud gaseous chrome cows with poison pores, and in these weird planets it rains with regularity, too much regularity for a desert tree, and the roots will sometimes rot. As well, it's the thornless ones mostly that adorn the strip mall landscapes, pitiful, violent, obscure. To find the old mesquites, the old soul mesquites, the ancient ones, made before the irrigation, and later before the air conditioner, those whining abhorrent hives of cheap hot air. To find the mesquite trees from before all that, you have to get to the river or out to the country, beyond the noise and conceit of the city. Those trees speak in dialects of stone, indigenous language of petroglyphs and hand-dug canals and before that of moon rises witnessed only by lichens. Lichens and the pregnant spirit of time, fertile tilting time, endless rising, endless setting, spinning silk potentiality from this body of living dirt. Welcome, friends, to WBMP, getting weird on your radio dial. Behind us, we have the Swedish melodic death metal band, Arch Enemy, unleashing two total bangers, My Apocalypse and Nemesis. This segment features a conversation from January 7, 2013, when CNN's torpid and flaccid host Piers Morgan, for some angelic purpose, decided to interview Alex Jones about gun control
3: Damn the iron rods. The guns, the iron rods, Pierce, didn't do it. The tyrants did it. Hitler took the guns. Stalin took the guns. Mao took the guns. Fidel Castro took the guns. Hugo Chavez took the guns. And I'm here to tell you, 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. Does not matter how many many limbs you get out there on the street? For them to have their guns taken. We will not relinquish them. Do you understand? And that's why you're going to fail and the establishment knows no matter how much propaganda, the Republic will rise again when you attempt to take our guns. Pierce, don't try what your ancestors did before. Why don't you come to America? I'll take you out shooting. You can become an American and join the Republic. Yes, I am finished will not take my right. You go through background checks. And you get How about Prozac? You know, the number one. Oh, that's a big sponsor, isn't it? Or that whole class of drugs. Awesome, oh, whoa. Gotta cut that off, don't you? Don't want to talk, talk about the U.S. Tell number the one cause of death okay. is suicide now because they give people suicide Conga. mass murder pills. Conga. Your answer is give more money to the psychiatrist okay. and psychologist and put more crazy people on drugs that make them kill people, Pierce, have a debate. Yeah. yeah. This mm-hmm. I'm sick of the same old script here, Bob. And I'm going to say this right here. You think you're a tough guy? Head me back with a boxing ring in here, and I'll wear red, white, and blue, and you can wear your Jolly Roger. Okay. You know what? Well, you... Let's try again. <laughs> how many gun murders were there? Oh, we're gonna ban your fist In Britain last year. Uh, how many uh, chimpanzees can dance on the head of a pin? Hmm. I already went over those statistics. Do you know the answer? Uh, no, I don't. I... You said hundred. It's very low. You said hundred. Yes. It's actually thirty-five. Well, the point is, you can against ship... eleven. Do you, do you understand hey, the difference between eleven thousand? Yeah, England wants 35. to ban knives now because tens of thousands are getting stabbed. But do you understand the knives? difference? The knife doesn't a, kill people. Do you understand? The gun doesn't kill people. Do doesn't kill people. Yes, yes. America was born on guns and whiskey. But it's true we're a violent society. Right. So but statistically, America, has the most, not, well, 11, America was born on guns are and it. whiskey. Mother chops her kids up with a cleaver because she's on serotonin. Tell me why I'm wrong. Why don't you want to get rid of the drugs? Because they're half your sponsors. To the t- America's number one cause of unnatural death now is suicide. Okay. Not automobile not accident, not cancer, not... You listen. excuse me of attacking the 2nd Amendment of the Constitution. I want to get people off pills that the insert says will make you commit suicide Alex. and kill people. Alex they, announced they blew up the towers on CBS radio. You New Yorkers all saw it and heard it. Alex, who do you they believe... They blew up Building 7. Alex. Who do you believe was behind it? The American government criminal elements of the military-industrial complex, the same ones that staged Gulf of Tonkin, the same ones that staged Operation, right. the mass shootings of Operation Gladio. Right. Ooh, do Ooh, the CIA do you don't mean, like this right I now. Know. Do you mean that President Bush and his administration were behind 9 alert I mean that even mainstream news reported that the hijackers were ordered to be allowed into the United States. Michael Springman, the head of the VC department, blew the whistle wow. on that. So the Bush administration was part of the conspiracy. Well, to he said never let us talk to murder. To, to murder. murder to murder. I, mean, I can speak in this accent as well. Yeah. But is that the way Hitler firebombed his own Reichstag is yes, to bring in martial law in Germany April 27th, 1933? Governments have staged terror attacks throughout history or allowed terrorists to attack mm-hmm. as a pretext to invade How many and enslave How many the populations. I proba- I probably own more than fifty firearms. Many of them have increased in value two, three, or even four times. I sleep very comfortably uh, outside Austin, okay. Texas, knowing Alex. that I can defend my family. Okay, Alex Jones. This is Infowars.com. This is the man who wants to deport me from the country for wanting to get no, rid no. of the No, it's, it's, it's rifle to point out you're a foreigner, a red coat you're telling us what to do. Whatever. Go back to where they took the guns if you don't like it. <laughs> will commence again Did you're to take our firearms. And I'm going to say this right here. You think you're a tough guy? Well, head me back with a boxing ring in here. And I'll wear red, white, and blue. And you can wear your Jolly rogers. You know what you.
4: get that with them windows, bitch. Who them girls you be with when you be right. Man, and I ain't got nothing to prove, I made my news, breaking the rules and shake fools while I'm trying to cool, tell me who's your weed man, and how do you smoke so good, who's a superstar boy, why you still up in the hood, what in the world is in that bag, What's got it in that bag. A couple of cans of whoop you did a bad job, i just eyeing me spy. that car don't come out until next year. Where in the fuck did you get it? That's 80,000 bucks. Boom! Where in the fuck did you spit it? You must have eyes on your back, cause you got money to the ceiling. And the bigger the cap, the bigger the pill, and the better I'm feeling, the more that I'm chilling with it, feeling the killer. Who's that bucket naked cook? Fixing three coats meal. Get Bumps when a body taps the six inch heel, what in the world is in that room? What you got in that room? A couple of gaps, a couple of knives, a couple of wraps, a couple of wives. Now it's time Are to die. custom made, custom paid, or you just custom fitted? PlayStation 2 up in the rock, and this that Lorenzo kidding. Is that your wife, your girlfriend, or just your main bitch? You take a pick while I'm rubbing the hips, touch to lift to the top of the dick, and then. GBIO,
1: bit about Leonard Peltier and his life and the role he came to play in the American Indian Movement, which resulted in him being uh, viciously persecuted by the FBI. So Leonard Peltier as a child lived with his grandparents on the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota in a tiny house without water and electricity. They had barely enough to eat, working the potato fields for low pay. In 1953, like tens of thousands of other Native American children, a big black government car came and took Leonard and other children off to the BIA boarding school, it's the Bureau of Indian Affairs, boarding school in Wapiton, North Dakota, where he was tormented, disciplined, had his hair shorn, and was sprayed with DDT. I consider my years at Wapiton to be my first imprisonment, writes Leonard. And it was for the same crime as all the others, being an Indian. We had to speak English. We were beaten if we were caught speaking our own language. Still, we did. We'd sneak behind the buildings the way kids today sneak out to smoke behind the school, and we'd talk Indian to each other. I guess that's where I first became a hardened criminal, as the FBI calls me. And you could say that my first infraction in my criminal career was speaking my own language. There's an act of violence for you. After surviving the BIA boarding school, Leonard was not even fifteen when he was arrested by BIA police as he and his friends were leaving the grounds of a Sundance, and then again a few months later for siphoning some diesel fuel from an army truck to heat his grandmother's freezing house. Sounds pretty righteous to me. <laughs> siphoning diesel fuel from an army truck to heat his grandmother's house is pretty, pretty righteous. It was no surprise then that in 1959, Leonard relocated to Portland to join his mother, where he worked in construction and other jobs. He even co-owned an auto body shop in Seattle, which failed as they began doing jobs for friends for free. As he recalled, before long, we got so deep into debt that we had to close the shop. My one attempt at capitalism was over, scuttled by that old Indian weakness, sharing with others. It's a practice that means we're rich as a people, but poor as individuals. Leonard increasingly became tuned into struggles emerging around him, such as the fishing rights struggles in Washington State. Even though I was young, I felt I could no longer ignore the native struggle so long as one Indian was being mistreated. Like so many others who were shaken out of their submission and lethargy and indifference during the 1960s, I joined the fight for civil, and hu- for civil and human and Indian rights. Roots of AIM or the American Indian Movement. The civil rights and black power movements provided the backdrop to a rise of Indian militancy that grew out of and developed parallel to them the conditions were ripe for this kind of struggle. The movements for independence and decolonization in Africa and Asia, as well as the national liberation struggle in Vietnam, set the stage for Native Americans to challenge the policies of the US government. In his book, Custer Died for Your Sins, the celebrated Sioux author Vine Deloria noted that, President Lyndon Johnson talked about America's commitments, and President Nixon talked about Russia's failure to respect treaties. Indian people laugh themselves sick when they hear these statements. After all, to quote Howard Zinn, the U.S. government had signed more than 400 treaties with Indians and had violated every single one. Native American political organizing in the very early 1960s consisted of moderate organizations like the National Congress of American Indians that grew less accommodating throughout the 60s, not unlike the NAACP. In 1961, a group of radicalizing students led by Clyde Warrior, who had worked on a student nonviolence coordinating committee, voter education project in the summer, split from the NCAI, the National Congress of American Indians, and formed the National Indian Youth Council, the NIYC. NIYC condemned the BIA as a white colonialist institution and began discussing red power in the pages of its newspaper, ABC, Americans Before Columbus. Throughout the 1960s, a wave of similar struggles unfolded mostly in Indian areas of major cities and on campuses such as San Francisco State. Lenata Boyer, the first American Indian student at Berkeley, led a fight for for an American Indian Studies department. There were other key battles as well, namely the fish-ins that occurred in Washington state by local tribes demanding their traditional rights to fish for salmon and steelheads as guaranteed by treaties signed in the 1850s. Clearly, there was an opening for actions on a much larger scale, and that could take up bigger questions of Indian sovereignty and dignity. The immediate spark that created the American Indian Movement began with the occupation of Alcatraz Island. In November 1969, 78 people, most of them members of the group of of Indians of All Tribes, IAT, occupied Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay. The IAT demanded title to Alcatraz and, in the interest of being fair, offered to purchase Alcatraz for $24 in glass beads and cloth. Our offer of $1.24 per acre is greater than the $0.47, per, 47 cent per acre the white men are now paying the California Indians for their land. The Alcatraz occupation lasted for 19 months and more than 5,600 American Indians joined the occupation, some for all 18 months and some for just part of a day. The action was received with an outpouring of support, both political and material and made headline news for months, though eventually the occupants were removed from the island. A number of Indian activists, some who were later to become well-known in the movement, led and participated in the occupation. For example, Richard Oakes, Lenata Boyer, Grace Thorpe, John Trudell, and Russell Means. The occupation, though it did not achieve its goals to establish an Indian museum and cultural center on the island, was important in that it brought the issues and concerns of American Indians to national attention. But the IAT was not able to project itself onto the national stage that its own actions had prepared. The American Indian Movement stepped into that role. It was founded in Minneapolis in 1968 by a group of urban Anishinaabes, including Clyde Bellingcourt, Mary Jane Wilson, Eddie Benton, and Dennis Banks. Clyde and Eddie actually met at the Minnesota Federal Penitentiary and organized Native Americans living in Minneapolis and St. Paul. At first, AIM organized around jobs, housing, and and against police harassment. In the 1960s, the annual household income for an American Indian family was $1,500, one-fourth the national average. Native American life expectancy was 44 21 years below the national average. AIM took off quickly, with chapters sprouting up across the country as they organized a series of critical, bold, and po- polarizing actions until it was met with vicious government repression that culminated in Peltier's conviction and imprisonment. Leonard Peltier first became an activist while in Seattle, participated in the 1970 takeover of Fort Lawton, an abandoned military installation. The action was directly inspired by the Alcatraz events. Some months later, Peltier joined the AIM chapter in Denver. In January 1972, 51-year-old Raymond Yellow Thunder was brutally beaten by four white racists taunted and humiliated, stripped down and shoved in the trunk of a car while being driven around for hours, pushed naked into an American Legion dance hall in Gordon, Nebraska, and then thrown out into the cold night. Afterward, he he went missing, only to be found dead in his car a week later. Yellow Thunder's distraught family searched for him for a week and at first weren't allowed to see his body. They sought assistance everywhere they could, including from police, BIA, and the tribal government in hopes that there would be an investigation into Yellow Thunder's death, but they found none. uh, Severt Young Bear, a nephew of Raymond's, contacted AIM. This was AIM's first major action on a reservation. They mobilized 1,400 people, mostly Lakota of the Pine Ridge and Rosebud Reservations, with 80 tribes represented overall, and occupied Gordon, Nebraska, shutting it down for three days. One million dollars in Oglala Sioux tribal money was transferred out of Gordon's banks. In response, the state of Nebraska, the Department of Justice, and the Department of the Interior all agreed to investigate Yellow Thunder's death. This brings us to Wounded Knee II, the occupation of Wounded Knee. Dick Wilson, a former brute legger, was elected Oglala Sioux Tribal Council President in 1972. Wilson was deeply unpopular because of his mistreatment of the elderly and traditional people on the reservation, his undemocratic methods, and the rampant nepotism and corruption that infested his administration. so just a little background here before we get into the shooting and the case. So there was the Wounded Knee Occupation, otherwise known as the Second Wounded Knee. It began on February uh, 27, 1973, and it lasted two months, one week, and four days, ending on May 8, 1973. And uh, what the Wounded Knee occupation was, was approximately 200 Oglala Lakota, sometimes referred to as Oglala Sioux, and followers of the American Indian Movement, AIM, seized and occupied the town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. The protest followed the failure of an effort of the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization to impeach Tribal President Richard Wilson whom they accused of corruption and abuse of opponents. Additionally, protesters criticized the United States government's failure to fulfill treaties with Native American people and demanded the reopening of treaty negotiations to hopefully arrive at fair and equitable treatment of Native Americans. Oglala and AIM activists controlled the town for 71 days, while the United States Marshals Service, FBI agents, and other law enforcement agencies cordoned off the area. The activists chose the site of the 1890 Wounded Knee Massacre for its symbolic value. In March, a U.S. marshal was shot by gunfire coming from the town, which ultimately resulted in paralysis. A member of the Cherokee tribe and a member of the Oglala were both killed by shootings in April of 1973. Ray Robinson, a civil rights activist who joined the protesters, disappeared during the events and is believed to have been murdered. Due to damage to the houses, the small community was not reoccupied until the 1990s. So that was, that sets the stage for then what is referred to as the reign of terror, the FBI's reign of terror against the uh, American Indians on the Pine Ridge Reservation as sort of like uh, part of the COINTELPRO and part of the response and disciplining from that occupation of Wounded Knee. So. I'm going to be reading a little bit here from whoisleonardpeltier.info. Throughout the years of Wounded Knee 2, long referred to by local Native Americans as the Reign of Terror, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, carried out intensive local surveillance as well as repeated arrests, harassment, and bad faith legal proceedings against AIM leaders and supporters at Pine Ridge. The FBI also closely collaborated with and supported the local tribal chairsperson. Dick Wilson and his vigilantes the guardians of the Oga- Oglala Nation Mr Wilson was notorious for his corruption and abuse of power and of course that was the it was the failure to convict him that led to the occupation the second occupation of wounded knee so during the same period, the FBI's COINTELPRO co- conducted a full-fledged counterinsurgency war against the American Indian Movement, complete with death squads, disappearances, and assassinations not dissimilar to those conducted in third world countries such as El Salvador and Guatemala. During this reign of terror, some 64 local Native Americans were murdered and nearly 350 were subjected to non-lethal but serious physical assault. Virtually all of the victims were either affiliated with AIM or their allies, the traditional tribal members. The FBI had jurisdiction to investigate major crimes, yet these deaths were never adequately investigated or resolved, nor did the FBI agents take any measures to curb the violence of the goons. Again, that was kind of like the, the, the death squads, the vigilante squads, uh, with whom they closely collaborated. By that time, the politically motivated murder rate on the reservation had climbed and tensions ran extremely high on all sides, setting the stage for the incident at, at Oglala on June 26, 1975. And that's the incident that uh, resulted in the shooting of the two FBI agents, and we're going to get right into that in a second. Reservation that precipitated the shootout that Leonard Peltier was blamed for. So, Leonard Peltier was not at the occupation of Wounded Knee, but he would fall victim to its aftermath, as would hundreds of others. The FBI launched an attack on AIM as part of its COINTELPRO program, which had begun in the mid 1960s under J. Edgar Hoover, fucking boo, fuck that guy, and was used to destroy the Black Panther Party the murder of BPP leader Fred Hampton, among many, while Dick Wilson and the BIA established an extreme reign of terror on Pine Ridge. Quote, the FBI set out to eliminate radical political opposition inside the U.S. When traditional modes of repression, exposure, blatant harassment, and prosecution for political crimes failed to counter the growing insurgency, commented one journalist, and even helped to fuel it, the Bureau took the law into its own hands and secretly used fraud and force to sabotage constitutionally protected political activity. The FBI employed many dirty tricks against its targets, including wiretapping, assassination, bad jacketing, spreading rumors that certain activists were informants in order to discredit them, and the use of Asian provocateurs, all in coordination with state and local officials, police forces, and district attorneys. Future South Dakota governor Bill Janklow declared at the time, the only way to deal with the Indian problem in South Dakota is to put a gun to the AIM leaders' heads and pull the trigger. That was the future South Dakota governor who said that. Many compare those years on Pine Ridge to a paramilitary invasion, certainly it, yeah. Dick Wilson and his goons went on a rampage of beatings and assassinations of AIM members, supporters, and the traditionals on Pine Ridge. Within three years, at least 69 AIM members and supporters were violently murdered on or near the Pine Ridge Reservation, while hundreds were physically assaulted. Writes Bruce Johansson and Roberto Mestas. Quote, using only the documented po- political deaths, the yearly murder rate on Pine Ridge Reservation between March 1, 1973 and March 1, 1976 was 170 per 100,000. By comparison, Detroit, the reputed murder capital of the United States, had a rate of 20.2 per 100,000 in 1974. In a nation of 200 million persons, a murder rate comparable with that of Pine Ridge between 1973 and 1976 would have left 340,000 persons dead for political reasons in one year. 1.32 million in three. The political murder rate at Pine Ridge between March 1, 1973 and March 1, 1976, was almost equivalent to that in Chile during the three years after a military coup supported by the United States deposed and killed President Salvador Allende." Unquote. Among the victims were Pedro Bisanet, Philip Black Elk, Priscilla White Plume, Byron de Cersa, and Anna May Aquash, most of the cases have never been solved or even pursued because the FBI and BIA have blood on their hands and every single one of them and any decent investigation would point back to them. Anna Mae Aquash, who was murdered in February 1976, was bad-jacketed by the FBI before her death. A BIA doctor, who also failed to notice that she had been shot in the head, removed her hands in a possible attempt to conceal her identity. It remains unclear if she was murdered by goons, the FBI, or AIM members who were convinced by FBI rumors that she was an informant. Many on the reservation believe that she was targeted by the FBI in retaliation for the deaths of the two FBI agents for which Peltier was prosecuted. Oh, my meowser's outside, hang on just a second.
5: Any I'm fish? Any, any, any?
6: Yes, we did fishing. Yes, there's a lot of lakes on Turtle Mountain. There's some of them are uh, fish fishing, and some don't
5: have nothing. Yeah. And and so yeah. what? What I imagine are trout up there. Is that is that so? Or uh, yeah, yeah a, lot, a
6: lot of trout uh, you know they uh, yeah yeah trout.
5: So by comparison, um, that was you know a long time ago.
6: Yeah, well, I was back in the forties and late forties and early fifties. Yeah,
5: that was uh, sixty-seven two-year. Well, I was, well, over sixty some years ago. <laughs> I'm seventy-two now. Yeah. So, can you describe? Um, well, first of all, how many prisons have you been in since what date? Well, I was uh, I was arrested in.
6: Uh, I was indicted in 1975 by uh, with a grand jury that had uh, uh, witnesses on there uh, that, well, the one that would used against me, I never, I never heard demand. And uh, her name was Barbara Porter. She was uh, in the grand jury and they uh, indicted four of us. And uh, and uh, I, I, uh, under my el- elder's advice, because we couldn't figure out why we were being, why we were being singled out. And at them, them days, chances of the Indian getting a fair trial was probably less than 1%. So they advised us to, or advise me, they said, why don't you go to Canada and we'll fight it politically from there. And we'll go over there and ask for a, a, a political asylum and we will, uh, and you, you know, we can find out just what kind of evidence they got against you and everything else you can do. So, so that's precisely what I did. And I got arrested February 6th, 1976 in, uh, uh, Canada British
7: Columbia and I spent almost a year in the, in the jail there
6: I was taken out of that jail with a hot helicopter and uh, out of the yard and I was flown to Rapid City then I was taken from there I was taken to uh, Abys- uh, Sioux Falls Penitentiary and from there when I, I was uh, went to uh, after I was, went to trial in Fargo North Dakota and was convicted on, uh, for first-degree murder uh, with no evidence. Nobody ever testified they seen me shooting at anybody, well, let alone killing anybody. And uh, there I was taken to Leavenworth. I was dropped off there. Then I was moved from there by bus to uh, Terre to, uh, Haute for a week. And then I was nine years in Marion, Illinois, it's their maximum super penitent uh, country at the time. Then from there I went back to. Uh, uh, no, then from there I went to uh, Springfield. I stayed there about two years, and then I went from there to Leavenworth, and I spent twenty years at Leavenworth. Then I went to from there to Lewisburg. Then from Lewisburg to Canaan. Then from Canaan back to Lewisburg, and then here. i just got about six years here now.
5: And that's so, at, that's, yeah. at Coleman, that's at Coleman, maximum yes. Coleman. Yes, Coleman and one. And that's maximum. I'm sorry.
6: That's maximum security prison, yes.
5: In Florida.
1: many on the reservation believe that she was targeted by the FBI in retaliation for the deaths of the two FBI agents for which Peltier was prosecuted. Two former AIM members were eventually prosecuted for her murder, but there is so much deliberate disinformation and confusion surrounding the case, it is likely that the full truth will never be known. It was the FBI and goon-driven reign of terror that led to, some would say provoked, the incident at Oglala. Amid this terror and fear, traditional leaders on Pine Ridge once again called on AIM for protection, especially for older traditional people. That is why Peltier and dozens of others were camping on the Jumping Bull property on that fateful day in June of 1975. Quote, the FBI had more than 50 agents swarming over the Pine Ridge, Res- Pine Ridge reservation and prior to 1973, they only had two or three agents in the area. If that, wrote Peltier. Seems like the more FBIs we had around, the more murders we had." Unquote. AIM members across the country faced constant harassment and frame-ups that drained the organization's resources and eventually broke its leadership. There were AIM-led actions through the end of the 1970s. A corps of activists protested the Robodeau and Butler trials as well as Pelletier's. There was a protest outside the FBI building in 1979. But the Pelletier conviction in 1977 was a severe blow from which AIM never recovered. What explains the virulence of the offensive against AIM? Economic motives were clearly at work. Around the time of the Wounded Knee occupation, Wilson signed over a portion of the reservation known to be rich in uranium and molybdenum to the U.S. Forest Service. Early 1970s government estimates of potential profits from uranium mining in the Black Hills was in the range of a half billion dollars. But the rationale extends beyond narrow economic reasons. The U.S. government was striving to smash the left, to break the back of political struggle, and the influence of revolutionary politics in particular. Indian militancy emerged on the scene just as many other struggles in this era began to reach a political impasse. Many struggles did not regain their footing after 1972, which is when AIM was ascending. The American Indian Movement was incredibly popular and well-connected with the main radical currents in U.S. society that were influenced by national liberation struggles around the world. Furthermore, AIM symbolized armed struggle and militancy against oppression. The government feared that AIM could be a key factor in reviving struggle. One reason they became so desperate to end the occupation at Wounded Knee was so that it ended before campuses let out for the summer. That's interesting. By 1973, the ruling class in this country was actively engaged in the process of breaking the back of revolutionary struggles here and abroad. The U.S. backed Augusto Pinochet's coup in Chile that year, for example. The OG (laughs) 9-11. The coup of Salvador Allende. Violent repression and divisive COINTELPRO tactics broke up and demoralized AIM, while the general decline of other social movements in this period sealed its fate. The American Indian Movement continued to organize through the end of the 1970s and maintains a presence in some areas of the U.S. today, but never recovered from the reign of terror and Pelletier's conviction in particular.
6: down to work in the power plant in Page, Arizona, and all I was saying in Flagstaff, I was observing how Indians were being treated, and they were being beaten out the streets, and there were people walking around with clothes, 10 at a time, and uh, they were arresting them, put them in, uh, in, uh, in stockades, and uh, uh, this is real, this is real, this is not something made up, it's all recorded so i decided that uh, well you know uh, i gotta help my people i gotta do something i, I you know I, so i was going through denver and i ran into the vernon belcourt there and i joined up there and we went to uh, have have our uh, convention in uh in minnesota while we were having our convention a group of people from uh Wanted us to have. Uh, uh, we were going to have a convention up there because there was 12 Indians that were murdered there, and uh, no no investigations, nobody being arrested, nothing like this. So they wanted us to come down there and hold civil rights hearings, and that's what Dan was doing. So then the, the the elders from Pioneer Ridge came down there and made up uh, made a, uh, a request that Indians come, that somebody come down come to Pine Ridge and uh, help protect them because they were being, there were drive-by shootings going on, there was uh, uh, people dying, people getting killed, and uh, like I said, the Senator Church's investigation and the General Accounting Service did their own investigation and found there
5: was over a hundred Indians killed there. So Leonard, let let me just, I want to 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 just clarify it. Okay, so but again, we're talking about this post Wounded Knee period. I believe is that correct? Yeah, that's
6: what led up to Wounded
5: Knee. Okay, led up,
6: yeah.
5: so then and, and and then after Wounded Knee in 1975, um, tell me tell me about uh, coming to Oglala at that time. That's that little town on the reservation on Pine Ridge Reservation. Well, we set
6: up. What we went in, when we went in there, we told the people this we're not coming in as an armed group of people we're not coming in here to start a civil war we're not coming in here to start any kind of war what we want to do is that we started back in the in the northwest is that we we are nations of we are not reservations we're nations and we want to we want to build our economics up we have to build our economy so we started uh We started a store there, a gas station, and uh, and started building large community gardens. And we started started putting things like that there. But in the meantime, people were coming to us and asking for protection because their homes were being shot up. And the women were terrified. The children were terrified. So we used to go pull security at their homes all night so they could get a night's sleep. So, the end of the day, 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 the day,
1: Mr. Jack Kohler and Mr. Ron Williams entered private property on the Pine Ridge Reservation, the Jumping Bull Ranch. They drove unmarked vehicles, wore plain clothes, and neglected to identify themselves as law enforcement officers. They allegedly sought to arrest a young Indian man, Jimmy Eagle, for the theft of a pair of cowboy boots. They believed, the government contends, that they had seen Eagle in a red pickup truck that they then followed onto the Jumping Bull property. Members of the American Indian Movement were camping on the property at the time. They had been invited there by the Jumping Bull elders who sought protection from the extreme violence on the reservation at that time. Many non-AIM persons were present as well. So this is right in the midst after the second uh, the occupation of wounded knee and the reign of terror and just to give you an idea of how absurd they they were going on private property to arrest arrest the FBI going to arrest a young native man because he stole a pair of cowboy boots that's what the fuck they're doing going around trying to hold people to justice for the for the theft of cowboy boots and uh, so the the tensions were already like super high again they didn't uh, Identify themselves, they were wearing plain clothes and unmarked vehicles. So, for unknown reasons, a shootout began, but I I would imagine it was self-defense. A family with small children was trapped in the crossfire. Throughout the ranch, people screamed that they were under attack, and many of the men present hurried to return fire. When the skirmish ended, the two FBI agents were dead. The U.S. government claims they had been wounded and then shot through their heads at close range. A young Native American named Joe Stunts also lay dead, shot through the head by a sniper bullet. His killing has never been investigated. The more than 30 men, women, and children present on the ranch were then quickly surrounded by over 150 FBI agents, Special Weapons and Tactics, uh, or SWAT team members, Bureau of Indian Affairs Police, and local vigilantes. They barely escaped through a hail of bullets. The Aftermath The FBI immediately began its investigation into the shootout, the so-called Resmurs investigation, and launched the biggest manhunt of its history. Angry agents shot up the jumping bull home, leaving bullet-riddled family portraits in their wake. In the days following the shootout, FBI agents in SWAT gear and carrying assault rifles also terrorized other Pine Ridge residents through a series of warrantless no-knock assaults on their homes, just busting into people's homes. Continuing with its long tradition of manipulating the media, placing articles in the popular press that put the Bureau in a positive light, and interfering in the publication of dissident writings by persons such as Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the FBI immediately set about disseminating gross inaccuracies about this case. Agents Kohler and Williams, the FBI claimed, had been murdered, quote, in a cold-blooded ambush by a large force of trained guerrillas in sophisticated bunkers and fortifications, but not before Williams had first pleaded for their lives for the sake of Kohler's wife and children. How the Bureau developed this information about Williams' last words in the absence of anyone who could have heard them was unclear. Other reports indicated that the agent's bodies had been, quote, riddled with bullets. Then FBI Director Clarence Kelly was forced to retract these statements when reporters who had been barred from the Jumping Bull property for two days following the shootout began to discover the truth. Selective Prosecution the FBI very quickly focused its investigation on prominent AIM members known to be present during the shootout, Leonard Peltier in particular. The investigation became a, became a race to develop a case against him. Investigators imposed their desires on the evidence, taking bits and pieces and fashioning them in such a way so as to support their case. In short order, indictments were issued against Leonard Peltier, as well as his two friends and colleagues, Dino Butler and Bob Robodeau. who also also had been present throughout the incident. Charges against a fourth man, Jimmy Eagle, a non-AIM member, were later dropped. Prosecutors admitted during Peltier's trial that Jimmy Eagle Eagle had not been to the reservation on the day of the shootout. However, FBI documents later revealed that the government decided to dismiss charges against Eagle Eagle, so that the full prosecutive weight of the federal government could be directed against Leonard Peltier, unquote. Despite the presence of so many individuals on the Jumping Bull property during the shootout, no other individuals were given any serious scrutiny during the Resmier's investigation, even those who claimed participation in the shootout and bragged about being responsible for the agents' deaths. No other persons were charged for the shooting deaths of the FBI agents.
2: Jihon Hafez has more on this case. He's a sensitive topic for the FBI. The imprisonment of this Native American man has led a movement that transcends beyond U.S. borders and illustrates a gaping wound still bleeding injustice for America's indigenous population. <laughs> It's a far cry from justice for Leonard Peltier. The six-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee spent his 66th birthday in prison, marking over three decades since he was convicted of a crime many argue he did not commit. They had no evidence at all that he, that he killed anybody.
7: Um, and that's in the court records.
2: It all began here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. The FBI's covert war against the militant American Indian movement culminated in the deaths of two FBI agents and a native member of AIM. Although two AIM members were acquitted of the shootings on evidence of self-defense, Peltier was extradited back to the U.S. from Canada. The FBI's lead witnesses in the case later recanted their statements, which the FBI used as faulty affidavits and coerced testimonies against Peltier. Regardless of the questionable evidence, Peltier was convicted of two life terms in prison. He has been labeled by foreign heads of state, U.S. lawmakers, Hollywood movie moguls, and members of the European Parliament as a political prisoner of the United States. The Hollywood version of Peltier's story suggests he was framed by the FBI.
7: We're going to kill you if, you if you stay here now. Come on, let's go. Well, sometimes they have to kill us. They have to kill us because they can't break our spirit.
2: Another account of the shooting in the documentary film Incident at Lugala provides evidence and witnesses that lead to a possible setup by the FBI. RT contacted the FBI's National Bureau here in Washington, D.C., where a spokesman said the FBI would not support a retrial into Peltier's case and that this is one of the most looked at cases in FBI history. After numerous appeals were denied in the courts, the FBI says justice was served in Peltier's case because he is guilty. When asked about the allegations, that the FBI had framed Peltier. An official from the Minneapolis field office said those claims are, quote, ridiculous.
6: And the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, even he wrote a letter saying that it was time to uh, call an end to this. Uh, he says in, uh, in Leonard Peltier you know, should be uh, set free. After all, he said it was the government who started the fight.
2: Last year, Peltier was up for parole. And i just like to have my brother home but he was not paroled and as the fbi continues to fight against his release peltier supporters are growing weary he will ever be set free the government's doing everything to just to keep him there to make he's a scapegoat you know
6: if he was released and then, then they would uh, somehow it would be shown that peltier was
2: a, a scapegoat In a letter to the public peltier writes he is now u.s president barack obama's political prisoner begging the question why does the u.s. still have political prisoners and will president obama break from his predecessors and finally grant clemency for a man that still stands as a martyr for the struggle of native americans
1: everybody welcome to a brand new segment of the show dun 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 my beef with the new planet fitness guy so as you all may or may not know i go to planet fitness i go all the time i'm reliant on it for endorphins for my mental health I don't go to Planet Fitness because it's the best gym in the world. It's not. It's not the best gym at all. Uh, It doesn't have a pool. It has these hydro massage machines that you have to pay. If you pay the black card price, you get to use them, but they're broke half the time. It doesn't really have, like, as great of equipment as other gyms might have. But the reason I go is, A, because it's convenient, and, B, because the staff is really great, and they know me, and we're, like, we're homies, you know? So I try to, like... You know, I pay my $22 a month for like the the kind of mediocre gym experience of Planet Fitness. So I try to get whatever deals I can. And part of the deals, when you sign up to be a Black Card member, you get half off on beverages. Not protein drinks, but on beverages. And as all y'all may or may not know as well, I'm a big fan of the Celsius i'm addicted to caffeine but i can't drink coffee (laughs) so i like celsius drinks they have little packets uh, but they also have these little cans of carbonated and non-carbonated drinks they're delicious they got like 200 milligrams of caffeine they do the job and normally they're three dollars each um at planet fitness but when you have a black card you get half off celsius and it's been like this for years and years i've been going to this gym now almost every day for god at least four years and uh you know, they, they almost like, no, they, they can re- handle me before I even, you know, they know that I'm going to get the Celsius, they do the half off, everything's great, everything's fine. But we also know that because of capitalism, every single quarter, every single corporation has to squeeze a few extra pennies out of everybody for the, the CEO bonuses and for this, the shareholders. And so every quarter things get like a little shittier for everyone else, including like for the consumers, And so Planet Fitness, they just had their quarterly thing. And I knew that something was afoot because I could see that these suits, these, like, fucking Planet Fitness suits-ass motherfuckers were, like, always lurking around and with their clipboards and walking around and having meetings with the branch manager who's, like, amazing. I love the branch manager. She's really sweet. And she actually has, like, a soul. And these, these fucking corporate douches are, like yeah we got to do something about this soul uh because it's costing it's it's costing our shareholders uh we need we need to increase the bottom line a little bit these little bastards and so they made a bunch of changes and one of the changes they made is that you no longer can get half off on celsius because these motherfuckers did the math and they're like oh yeah the reason why people like these energy drinks make so much money for everyone is they have like a super long shelf life and their value doesn't go down over time it takes like what two years for them to like quote-unquote go bad so they can just sit and sit and sit and they want to get the full price for their Celsius so that like you know their share price can increase like point zero 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 one percent they want to fucking get full price for their fucking Celsius and so they took away the half off Celsius I was not not okay with it and so I talked to the branch manager and I was like look is it cool if I get grandfathered in on the Celsius's? And she's like, yeah, I'll take care of you. And I was like, fuck yeah, I appreciate that. And so I figured that she had told... And so at the same time, they're making all these changes. And unsurprisingly, a lot of staff is leaving. So I was like friends with all the staff. And all of a sudden, there was like none of the staff. There was all new staff, pretty much. Same branch manager, but like all new staff. That to me was another red flag. That means that they had been making like nitpicky, little asshole Uh, corporate decisions that make everything worse for employees like probably like you know you get like a write-up if you're seen on your phone or like stupid shit like that and so there was all these new staff people and I just kind of I guess yeah I guess it was kind of an assumption but I assumed that that she would have kind of told everybody that I was grandfathered in for the half off on Celsius so several weeks ago I walked in and it's a new guy and uh, you know he's I don't know how else to say, he's like this dweeby guy that I can tell has like anger issues, but like is also like a dweeb and doesn't know how to express it. And I could tell this guy was gonna be trouble from the very moment I laid eyes on him, but I was like, it's cool, don't, don't judge, whatever. So I go, I bring up my Celsius and I'm like, hey, it's I'm grandfathered in for the half off on the Celsius. And he, he looks at me and he goes, oh. I hate to break it to you but, and he like points, he shows me behind on the monitor there's a little sign that says like Celsius is no longer half off and he like points it to me and kind of smirks and I'm like, yeah I realized that, they told me that they changed the policy but I'm grandfathered in for the old policy because I've been coming here for years, I come here all the time. And he's like, he's like, oh I don't think so man, and I got kind of pissed. So I looked at him and I kind of like raised my eyebrows and I was like, are you for real right now? And he was like looking at me with this little like self-satisfied smirk. So I was like, fine, I'm not gonna argue with you. I grabbed my Celsius's, I jammed him back in the fridge, I shut the door and then I was just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna get my workout on because I was getting agitated. My blood pressure was kind of rising and I could see him kind of like leering at me as like I, I walk away from him. Just like, what the fuck is up with this guy? And luckily, I, uh, so I was just like working out whatever and then I saw that the, man, the branch manager was, was there that day. I was like, thank God. And I didn't even throw him under the bus or nothing. I didn't say anything about this guy. I don't even want, like, I, I do not want this guy to be like a part of my lifestyle at all. <laughs> but I went directly to his boss, to the manager, who is my friend. And I was like, hey, is it cool if I get grandfathered in on the Celsius? And she was like, yeah, yeah. So I just had her ring me up for him because we had already agreed on that and uh so i she i end up taking the celsius's again right like walking right past him and then as he's next to her she's like giving me the discount or whatever and i can see that he's like oh fuck this guy actually was grandfathered in and i figured we'd be cool from that point because i didn't throw him under the bus i didn't even i didn't even like I got agitated for a second in the way that I kind of like scooped my Celsius's up and I didn't look at him and I basically was like, fine, fuck off. But, you know, whatever. Uh, and so I was like, all right, so I don't think about this guy again. <laughs> but then the a couple of days later or a week later or something like that, the there's only one bike rack outside the Planet Fitness and it's like very – it's not at all suitable for the task because there's like tons of – There's always fucking people with with bikes around and there's just like there's a whole community of like semi-street people that live right by the gym and uh, there's never enough room on the bike rack. So today was one of those days and when there's not room on the bike rack or when I forget my lock, again because they know me, they they know that I'll bring my bike in sometimes if I have to. And it's no big deal because I put it out of the way, it's fine, I'm only there for an hour and I leave. But this day, of course, the dweeby guy's in there, and I, I'm like, fuck, so I go in, and I kind of have to, like, it's real awkward, because there's the two glass doors, and I have my huge electric llama, <laughs> so I'm kind of, like, awkwardly, like, kind of propping open one door with my hip and trying to maneuver the big electric llama, which weighs 80 pounds, and he's just, like, watching me, kind of, like, bemused, and I'm like, first off, like, kind of a fuck you, like, why don't you just hold the door open for me? And then uh, I walk in, and he looks at me like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, yeah, the, there's no room on the bike rack, so I'm just going to leave the bike uh, right next to the um, front desk. And he's like, "He's like, uh, today's not really a good day for that. And I had no idea what he even meant by that, but I was like, uh-huh. And I just put my bike right next to the, the front desk like I always do, and I walked away, and I avoided eye contact with him and uh the last time so when i left the the last like few times that i've left the i always wave goodbye to everybody um and then you know he's been working occasionally too and they'll be like say there's like the branch manager and then another staff person i know and then the dweeby guy and i'll be leaving and i'll be like peace out everyone and he'll just glare at me and then the other two people will be like bye (laughs) and so that's where we currently stand with my Dun 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 beef with the planet fitness guy week, we're going to be listening to a letter. Uh, it's not actually recited by Leonard, but it's, it's a letter that was written by Leonard. Um, on June 26, 2016, he wrote it from prison. And um, just to, to kind of like bring everything to a close, Leonard Peltier is an American Indian Movement political prisoner who has been in prison for 46 years, despite all the evidence and testimony used against him has been proven to be fabricated and false. Leonard is now 76 years old with serious health issues, including an aortic aneurysm, a heart condition, an enlarged prostate, vision issues, diabetes, and more. We are concerned he is not receiving appropriate health care, and the Bureau of Prisons has not provided his medical records for us to see. Leonard wants to be transferred to Oxford, Wisconsin, due to it being much closer to his family and close to the BOP's medical facility in Rochester, Minnesota, where he can get adequate treatment for his health issues. At 76 years old with a myriad of health issues, Leonard is not a security risk, and there is no reason he cannot be transferred to a medium security facility. While the work to free Leonard continues, his health mandates that he be transferred. There are hundreds of thousands of us watching this happen and we are not okay with it. And I'm going to include in the description a petition to urge President Biden to pardon Leonard Peltier. So before we get into the letter from leonard i just want to say thank you so much for joining i really appreciate you guys i appreciate my listeners i appreciate the feedback uh, please support the show for just one dollar a month at patreon.com slash noetics and spread the word and tell a friend about the bmp and don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the bmp and uh, with all that said i hope you all have a fantastic week and I'll talk to you soon. And so we will go out now uh, with this letter from Leonard Peltier written from prison on June twenty-six, two 2016. Much love, everybody. Peace.
7: A letter from Leonard Peltier, June 26th, 2016. Sisters, brothers friends, and supporters. June 26 marks 41 years since the long summer day when three men were killed at the home of the Jumping Bull family near Oglala during a firefight in which I and dozens of others participated. While I did not shoot and therefore did not kill FBI agents Ronald Williams and Jack Kohler, I nevertheless have great remorse for the loss of their young lives, the loss of my friend Joe Stunts and for the grieving of their loved ones. I would guess that like me, many of my brothers and sisters who were there that day wish that somehow they could have done something to change what happened and avoid the tragic outcome of the shootout. This is not something I have thought about casually and then moved on. It's something I think about every day. As I look back, I remember the expressions of both fear and courage on the faces of my brothers and sisters as we were being attacked. We thought we were going to be killed. And we defended our elders and children as they scattered for protection and to escape. Native people have experienced such assaults for centuries, and the historical trauma of the generations was carried by the people that day, and in the communities that suffered further trauma in the days that followed the shootout, as the authorities searched for those of us who had escaped the jumping bull property. As the first peoples of Turtle Island, we live with the daily reminders of the centuries of efforts to terminate our nations, eliminate our cultures, and destroy our relatives and families. To this day, everywhere we go, there are reminders, souvenirs, and monuments to the near extermination of a glorious population of indigenous peoples, native peoples as mascots, the disproportionately high incarceration of our relatives, the appropriation of our culture, the never-ending efforts to take even more of Native people's land, and the poisoning of that land all serve as reminders of our own history as survivors of a massive genocide. We live with this trauma every day. We breathe, eat, and drink it. We pass it on to our children, and we struggle to overcome it. Like so many Native children, I was ripped away from my family at the age of nine or so and taken away to get the Indian out of me at a boarding school. At that time, Native people were not allowed to speak our own languages for fear of being beaten or worse. Our men's long hair, which is an important part of our spiritual life, was forcibly cut off in an effort to shame us. Our traditional names were replaced by new European-American names. These efforts to force our assimilation continue today. Not long ago, I remember a Menominee girl was punished and banned from playing on the school's basketball team because she taught a classmate how to say hello and I love you in her native language. We hear stories all the time about athletes and graduates who face opposition to wearing their hair long or having a feather in their cap. With this tiny little bit of my personal history, I think it is understandable that I would then as a young person in the 1960s and 70s, be active in the indigenous struggle to affirm our human, civil and treaty rights. Our movement was a spiritual one to regain our ceremonies and traditions and to exercise our sovereignty as native or tribal nations. For over 100 years, Some of our most important ceremonies would not be held. We could not sing our songs or dance to our drum. When my contemporaries and I were activists, there were no known sun dances. Any ceremony that took place had to be hidden for fear of reprisals. One of our roles as activists for the welfare of our peoples was to create space and protection for native peoples who were trying to reconnect to our ancient cultures and spiritual life. This was dangerous and deadly. It meant putting our lives on the line because people who participated in these ceremonies and people who stood up for our elders and our traditional way of life were brutally beaten, killed, or disappeared. Paramilitary groups and death squads ruled some reservations and each day was a battle. If an uninvited or unknown or unrecognized vehicle pulled up to your house, the first reaction was that you were being visited by someone who meant to do you harm in some way. This was learned behavior on the reservations. This was excruciatingly true in the 1970s. And hey, I don't want to be all doom and gloom here. I see over the decades that in some important ways, life has improved for our peoples. President Obama's extraordinary efforts to forge a strong relationship with our tribal nations is a good cause for a new sense of optimism that our sovereignty is more secure by exercising our sovereignty life for our people might improve. We might begin to heal and start the long journey to move past the trauma of the last 500 years. But what will we do if the next administration rolls back on those gains made over the past eight years? I often receive questions and letters from supporters about my health. Yes, this last year has been particularly stressful for me and my family my health issues still have not been thoroughly addressed and I've still not gotten the results of the MRI done over a month ago for the abdominal aortic aneurysm. As the last remaining months of President Obama's term pass by, my anxiety increases. I believe that this president is my last hope for freedom and I will surely die here if I am not released by January 20th, 2017. So I ask you all again, as this is the most crucial time in the campaign to gain my freedom. Please continue to organize public support for my release and always follow the lead of the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. Thank you for all you have done and continue to do on my behalf. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, Daksha Leonard Peltier.